Chapter Fourteen of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Fourteen: The River of the Devil. Ulan Taiga with Darkhat Ola lay behind us. We went forward very rapidly because the Mongol plains began here, free from the impediments of mountains. Everywhere splendid grazing lands stretched away. In places there were groves of larch. We crossed some very rapid streams, but they were not deep, and they had hard beds. After two days of travel over the Darkhat plain, we began meeting Soyots driving their cattle rapidly toward the northwest into Ogarka Ola. They communicated to us very unpleasant news. The Bolsheviki from the Irkutsk district had crossed the Mongolian border, captured the Russian colony at Katfil on the southern shore of Lake Kosogal, and turned, off south toward Murenkure, a Russian settlement beside a big Lamaite monastery sixty miles south of Kosogol. The Mongols told us there were no Russian troops between Kathil and Murenkure, so we decided to pass between these two points to reach Vankure, farther to the east. We took leave of our Soyot guide, and, after having sent three scouts in advance, moved forward. From the mountains around the Kosogol we admired the splendid view of this broad alpine lake. It was set like a sapphire in the old gold of the surrounding hills, chased with lovely bits of rich dark forestry. At night we approached Kathil with great precaution, and stopped on the shore of the river that flows from Kosogol, the Yaga, or Enkingol. We found a Mongol who agreed to transport us to the other bank of the frozen stream, and to lead us by a safe road between Kathil and Murenkure. Everywhere along the shore of the river were found large obo and small shrines to the demons of the stream. "'Why are there so many obo?' we asked the Mongol. "'It is the river of the devil.' "'Dangerous and crafty,' replied the Mongol. Two days ago a train of carts went through the ice, and three of them with five soldiers were lost.' We started to cross. The surface of the river resembled a thick piece of looking-glass, being clear and without snow. Our horses walked very carefully, but some fell and floundered before they could regain their feet. We were leading them by the bridle. With bowed heads and trembling all over, they kept their frightened eyes ever on the ice at their feet. I looked down and understood their fear. Through the cover of one foot of transparent ice one could clearly see the bottom of the river. Under the lighting of the moon all the stones, the holes, and even some of the grasses were distinctly visible, even though the depth was ten meters and more. The Yaga rushed under the ice with a furious speed, swirling and marking its course with long bands of foam and bubbles. Suddenly I jumped and stopped as though fastened to the spot. Along the surface of the river ran the boom of a cannon, followed by a second and a third. "'Quicker! Quicker!' cried our Mongol, waving us forward with his hand. Another cannon boom and a crack ran right close to us. The horses swung back on their haunches in protest, reared and fell, many of them striking their heads severely on the ice. In a second it opened up two feet wide so that I could follow its jagged course along the surface. Immediately up out of the opening the water spread over the ice with a rush. "'Hurry! Hurry!' shouted the guide. 
With great difficulty we forced our horses to jump over this cleavage and to continue on further. They trembled and disobeyed, and only the strong lash forced them to forget this panic of fear and go on. When we were safe on the farther bank and well into the woods, our Mongol guide recounted to us how the river at times opens in this mysterious way and leaves great areas of clear water. All the men and animals on the river at such times must perish. The furious current of cold water will always carry them down under the ice. At other times, a crack has been known to pass right under a horse, and where he fell in with his front feet in the attempt to get back to the other side, the crack has closed up and ground his legs or feet right off. The valley of Kosogol is the crater of an extinct volcano. Its outlines may be followed from the high west shore of the lake. However, the plutonic force still acts, and, asserting the glory of the devil, forces the Mongols to build oboe and offer sacrifices at his shrines. We spent all the night and all the next day hurrying away eastward to avoid a meeting with the Reds, and seeking good pasturage for our horses. At about nine o'clock in the evening a fire shone out of the distance. My friend and I made toward it with the feeling that it was surely a Mongol yurta beside which we could camp in safety. We travelled over a mile before making out distinctly the lines of a group of yurtas. But nobody came out to meet us, and, what astonished us more, we were not surrounded by the angry black Mongolian dogs with fiery eyes. Still, from the distance we had seen the fire, and so there must be someone there. We dismounted from our horses, and approached on foot. From out of the yurta rushed two Russian soldiers, one of whom shot at me with his pistol, but missed me, and wounded my horse in the back through the saddle. I brought him to earth with my mauser, and the other was killed by the butt-end of my friend's rifle. We examined the bodies, and found in their pockets the papers of soldiers of the second squadron of the Communist Interior Defense. Here we spent the night. The owners of the yurtas had evidently run away, for the red soldiers had collected and packed in sacks the property of the Mongols. Probably they were just planning to leave, as they were fully dressed. We acquired two horses, which we found in the bushes, two rifles and two automatic pistols with cartridges. In the saddlebags we also found tea, tobacco, matches, and cartridges, all of these valuable supplies to help us keep further hold on our lives. Two days later we were approaching the shore of the river Uri when we met two Russian riders, who were the Cossacks of a certain Ottoman Sutanin, acting against the Bolsheviki in the valley of the river Selenga. They were riding to carry a message from Sutanin to Kalgorodov, chief of the anti-Bolsheviki in the Altai region. They informed us that along the whole Russian-Mongolian border the Bolshevik troops were scattered, also that communist agitators had penetrated to Klatka, Ulankom, and Kabdo, and had persuaded the Chinese authorities to surrender to the Soviet authorities all the refugees from Russia. We knew that in the neighborhood of Urga and Van Kure, Engagements were taking place between the Chinese troops and the detachments of the anti-Bolshevik Russian General Baron Ungern Sternberg and Colonel Kazagrandi, who were fighting for the independence of Outer Mongolia. Baron Ungern had now been twice defeated, so that the Chinese were carrying on high-handed in Urga, suspecting all foreigners of having relations with the Russian general. 
we realized that the whole situation was sharply reversed. The route to the Pacific was closed. Reflecting very carefully over the problem, I decided that we had but one possible exit left. We must avoid all Mongolian cities with Chinese administration, cross Mongolia from north to south, traverse the desert in the southern part of the principality of Jasaktu Khan, enter the Gobi in the western part of Inner Mongolia, strike as rapidly as possible through sixty miles of Chinese territory in the province of Kansu, and penetrate into Tibet. Here I hoped to search out one of the English consuls, and with his help to reach some English port in India. I understood thoroughly all the difficulties incident to such an enterprise, but I had no other choice. It only remained to make this last foolish attempt, or to perish without doubt at the hands of the Bolsheviki, or languish in a Chinese prison. When I announced my plan to my companions, without in any way hiding from them all its dangers and chaoticism, all of them answered very quickly and shortly, Lead us, we will follow. One circumstance was distinctly in our favour. We did not fear hunger, for we had some supplies of tea, tobacco, and matches, and a surplus of horses, saddles, rifles, overcoats, and boots, which were an excellent currency for exchange. So then we began to initiate the plan of the new expedition. We should start to the south, leaving the town of Uliasutai on our right, and taking the direction of Zangunluk, then pass through the wastelands of the district of Balir of Jasatku Khan, cross the Narankuhu Gobi, and strike for the mountains of Boro. Here we should be able to take a long rest to recuperate the strength of our horses and of ourselves. The second section of our journey would be the passage through the western part of Inner Mongolia, through the Little Gobi, through the lands of the Torguts, over the Kara Mountains, across Kansu, where our road must be chosen to the west of the Chinese town of Suchow. From there we should have to enter the dominion of Kukunor, and then work on southward to the headwaters of the Yangtze River. Beyond this I had but a hazy notion, which, however, I was able to verify from a map of Asia in the possession of one of the officers, to the effect that the mountain chains to the west of the sources of the Yangtze divided that river system from the basin of the Brahmaputra in Tibet proper, where I expected to be able to find English assistance. End of chapter.